0: Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Guys, I I love how you love Jesus, Crossway. Just wanted to tell you that. Open your Bibles to Luke 18. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 9 through 14. 14. Uh, We've been using the Apostles' Creed to help us examine the timeless truths of the Christian faith. And today we are talking about the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Confessing this small phrase has huge implications on how we view ourselves as Christians and also uh, how we view those who do not affirm what we do. So if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb. Jesus, until I met you. Thank you, Jesus, for being a living God and a speaking God. Help us be hearing people today. We need to hear your good news Help us hear it. Help us believe it and respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After all that has been said about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the church, the creed finally says something about us as humans. And it states quite plainly that we are all sinners doesn't beat around the bush, it just puts it right out there. You and I are sinners, which is just another way of saying that something has gone terribly wrong with us. Uh, We all know deep down that what God originally intended us to be as humans has been bent, it's been damaged, misdirected, or misused, sometimes even weaponized against one another we all, each one of us, we kind of have this low-grade sense that we're living with, that we're somehow not measuring up. We all have this low-grade, vague, just kind of can't put my finger on it sense that we're not measuring up to all that God wants for us, all that God has created us to be. We're aware that we are not right with Him or with others. And what we want is acceptance. What we long for is acceptance. Most people think that Christianity is just like every other religion. You talk to them, they think, well it's just another way, of many ways, it's just another way to help people become a more moral person, to become a better, more upstanding uh, person so that they will be accepted. They'll be accepted by God in the end, they'll be accepted by a particular community, And this notion is bolstered by the fact that we live in a society that tells us that we get whatever we have earned. We live in a meritocracy, which fortifies this erroneous notion about what Christianity is. But this is very, very different from the true message of Christ. At the very core of Christianity is this belief, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. To confess the forgiveness uh, forgiveness of sins is to affirm many things that's packed into that phrase. It's to affirm that we have done terrible wrongs. It is to affirm that we deserve to be separated from God who's created us, but also it affirms that God has chosen to accept us by his mercy. Jesus confronts you and I with two ways to find acceptance with God in this parable that Jesus tells. And what I think is interesting is that both of these ways, both of these ways require a type of faith. Either it's self-righteous faith or it is repentant faith. But you can't get away from the faith faith part of it, the trust part of it. First we see the self-righteous are confident in their moral activity for acceptance. The self-righteous are confident in their moral activity for acceptance. Let's go to the text here, verse 11 and 12. Jesus says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes on all that I get. He doesn't just tithe on all that he earns, he tithes on all that he earns and all that he gets his gifts. This story would have come to a real shock to the people listening to us, listening to this originally. Jesus went around shocking people whenever he taught. The Pharisees, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the good people. They were the people you wanted living in in your neighborhood. They are the people you wanted on the school board. They were good people, all right? The Pharisees promoted going to church, tithing, fasting, telling the truth instead of lying, giving to the poor and to the homeless, and staying sexually pure. These are things they promoted. Just so we're clear, those aren't bad things, right? Okay, those are good things. There's nothing wrong with promoting those things. They actually challenged men to be involved fathers at home instead of just leaving, and going off and doing what they wanted, and they promoted other family values that had a very positive net effect on the society. They had good family values, we might say. And the Pharisee says this uh, as much in his prayer in this parable. He's a good guy. Now the tax collectors, on the other hand, they were the polar opposite. You couldn't get more opposite than being a tax collector. And this doesn't mean like what we think of. This is not like working for the IRS or something. This is different. We've got to get that picture out of our head. The tax collectors were considered traitors to their Jewish countrymen. You know why? Because they worked for the oppressive Roman government that was occupying the people. So get a picture of a group of people or maybe an individual that you consider a traitor to America. America. In your mind. Can you picture them? Do you feel what that emotion feels like? That's tax collectors, okay? They practice extortion, and they practice extortion against their own people. They also had abandoned the Jewish faith, which meant they had no regard to God, because you've got to abandon God if you're going to live like this, Right? They had no conscience, guys. They did all this stuff and they slept really good at night. They had no code of ethics except one. Look out for number one pragmatists. If it works, then it's right. They were genuinely rotten people that exploited a society instead of building up a society. So regardless of who you were in Israel, young or old, rich or poor, you hated tax collectors. That's something we could all agree on in that day. Are you guys feeling this? So you can see why the Pharisee thinks he's better than tax collector. He kind of is in a way. He goes to the temple to meet with God and he assumes he is accepted by God before he even walks to the door of the church, I mean temple. He just walks right into the presence of God. You're welcome, I'm here. He just assumes he's accepted. But I want you to notice that his prayer to God is not so much a prayer. It actually sounds a whole lot more like a speech, doesn't it, right? He, He doesn't ask God for anything. Did you notice that? He doesn't need anything from God. He doesn't ask God for anything. Rather, he gives like this selfie eulogy in front of God's face for all of his moral activity. That's what he's basing his acceptance on, all of his moral good behavior. He gives this very selective list of unrighteous activities that he's managed to refrain refrain from. Extortion, which is stealing from people. Legally, uh, general law breaking, that's what unjust means, I don't really break the law, you know, I drive a speed limit, you know, I park on the right side, whatever the ordinances are, just general law, uh, law keeping, and sexual misconduct. This is also followed up by two righteous activities that he just hits out of the park being financially generous and fasting. Nobody gives as much as this guy to charities. Like he beats you on that. And fasting is very spiritual. The Pharisee says this in his prayer God, would you look at all my moral activities I've laid out? Aren't you impressed with how great a guy I am? Unlike this tax collector over here? That's gutsy (laughs) to pray that out loud, right? You got to be pretty confident in God to pray that prayer. Jesus says despite the religious and moral deeds, this kind of person is not accepted by God because he finds that kind of person offensive. Isn't that a shock? It should shock you, I want to explain why God finds self-righteousness so offensive, and then I'm going to bring it home to us. God's not offended that the Pharisee does good deeds, okay? That would be nonsense, right? God gives us Ten Commandments. God gives us rules, right? This is good. This is not good. God says what is good and not good. So he is not offended by the fact that this guy does good things and lives a good life. It is that the Pharisee is trusting. He is relying on his moral activity to make him acceptable to God. That is what is offensive to God. Okay? So we need to be clear about that. Now, why? Here's why. Because when we are self righteous, we want God's acceptance without God's forgiveness. Let me say that again. When we are self-righteous, we want God's acceptance without God's forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness from God is offensive to us because it implies that there's something wrong with us. It implies there's something broken. There's something messed up inside of us. But look at how upright we live. But would you look at how upright we are? What could possibly be wrong with us? I mean, what really is there for God to forgive? Yeah, nobody is perfect, and yeah, I'm only human, and I can admit to that, but really, what? I ain't killed anybody. I ain't cheated on anybody. What really is there for God to forgive here? God has a duty to accept someone as good as me. When we put our confidence in our moral activity, what we are actually doing is trying to show God that we don't need God. That's what we're doing, guys. We're trying to show God that we don't need God's forgiveness in order to get his acceptance. We've found another way. We can get there via another route. That's what we're tr- and we're trying to prove that to him. We're trying to get him to agree with that, with us on that. We can be in a right standing with God another way. And Jesus is confronting you and I with the uncomfortable truth that self-righteous faith is the default mode of our hearts. Can we agree with that? Like, we don't have to think about it. It just kind of goes that way. It's kind of like my posture. I start out like this, and by the end, I'm like this. It just goes that way. It just goes that way. Every hour of every day, our hearts go this way right? We constantly, brothers and sisters, put our confidence in our moral activity, our moral resume, whether we are religious or whether we are non-religious. Everybody does this. There's no exceptions. Now, like I said, we don't instantly see how offensive the words of the Pharisees are, so what I want to do is I want to take the word, the prayer of the Pharisee, and I want to kind of update it for those of us who would identify as conservative Christian folk. Okay, you ready? I want us to get the thrust of what Jesus is actually saying so we can feel this. Dear God, I thank you that I go to church three weeks out of four. I tie 12% of my income, and I serve at the pregnancy care center twice a month, every month, even in December. I'm kind to my spouse. I don't sleep around on them. I've never been arrested, drunk, or voted Democrat. (laughs) Thank you that I am not like that gender-confused liberal over there. I am a good person. And I deserve to be accepted. Amen. You feel that? Here's how a prayer might sound from a non-religious self-righteous person. Dear God, universe or higher power, I do not want to put you in a box. I serve at the homeless shelter twice a month. I give generously to multiple charities that are actually making a difference in people's lives. I care about the earth I pay all my taxes, and I am accepting of everyone's beliefs except those religious conservatives. (laughs) Thank God I am not like them. I am a tolerant, good person, and I deserve acceptance. Amen. Now, I know, guys... We don't say those things out loud, do we? We're grown ups, we know how to hide all that, right? Do we? We don't say those things out loud, but we do think them, don't we? Don't we think them? I mean, isn't that the subtle subtext under a lot of stuff that we're posting on Facebook right now? Uh, I've had a couple conversations with skeptics lately, and I hope to have more conversations with skeptics. Um, And and one of the things I've learned that's been good for me is it's revealed in these conversations that unfortunately I've been relying on my religious deeds, and I've been relying on my correct uh, belief system to make me acceptable to God. This is for everyone, guys. Jesus is bringing our secret thoughts right out into the surface, right in the middle of a church service, isn't he? Because that's that's what's going on here. That's what we're here to do, amen? The default mode of every heart is to rely on our moral deeds to make us ultimately acceptable, however you define moral deeds. And when we do that, we are telling God that we don't need his forgiveness in order to have his acceptance, which God finds completely unacceptable. So here's the question that Jesus wants us to ask, if we're brave enough to ask it. Is self-righteous faith at work here at Crossway? Do our conversations reflect that we trust in our moral activity to be acceptable to God? Because the stories we tend to repeat tell us what we think and what we value, right? We're not just doing theology up in the stratosphere. We're trying to bring this down to the earth here today. But there is another way to find acceptance. There is another way Jesus tells us, and that's through repentant faith. The repentant are confident only in God's mercy for acceptance. The self-righteous, they're confident in their moral activity for acceptance, but the repentant are confident only in God's mercy for acceptance. Let's go to the text, verse 13. But the tax collector, but, that's a contrasting word. Here's one thing, I'm gonna, Jesus, I'm going to contrast it with something different. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I want you to look at how differently the tax collector acts compared to the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes straight into the presence of God. He walks right into the building, right into God's presence, probably right up to the front of the altar. The the tax collector he won't even enter the building. He stands way out. He's out in the parking lot. Uh, Rosario uh, Butterfill, she shares in her, one of her tests was how she came to faith. She was a uh, a professor. She's teaching uh, feminist uh, studies, and she was uh, a lesbian before she met Christ. And she would talk about how God was haunting her. She was very intelligent. She is very intelligent. She didn't believe any of that. But she would say, one of her steps is she would just come to a church and sit across the street from the parking lot. She couldn't bring herself to even go to the parking lot to come in. But she was curious. But That's as far as she felt like she could go. He won't even go in. In fact, he won't even look up to God, which is a sign of humility. And it says that he beat his breast as he's praying, which that was a sign of contrition. He's not putting on a show. He's not trying to call attention to himself. Back then, what he was doing was that he was showing I was truly sorrowful over his wickedness, right? What he's doing is like him saying, look, I acknowledge that my sin is caused real pain. It's caused real pain, not imaginary pain for people. He has no pride left. He doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. He's confessing to God. He doesn't care what anyone else thinks about his confession. God's eyes are the only eyes that matter to him. I'm coming to get right with God. And nothing's holding him back. Instead of this prayer that's a long prayer full of self-congratulatory words or or even plausible excuses, well, you know, I've done, God, I've just kind of, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've done some bad things in my life generally. He blurts out a short, self-depreciating prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector has come to the realization that he is a wicked man in the eyes of God. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't call it something else. He calls it what it is. He is comfortable calling it what it is at this point in his life. There's not a shred of arrogance or pride in him he knows and he admits that there is no way that he could be accepted by God apart from God choosing to have mercy on him. And he knows that he doesn't deserve that mercy from God for he calls himself a sinner in this prayer. It's a very short prayer but there is a lot in that prayer. When he prays this phrase, be merciful to me, the Greek word that's translated there for mercy is hilatheti. Hilatheti which means make atonement for me. Make atonement for me. Now that affects the meaning of the passage. He's not saying, oh God, I'm a sinner, give me a pass. Oh God, I'm a sinner, forget I did all that. Oh God, I'm a sinner, just make me feel less guilty. That's not what he's saying. He understands something's happened and that something else needs to happen. He's saying make atonement, which means there is a punishment that is due by him in order for things to be made right with God. Elder Dool talked about that very word a couple of weeks ago in his sermon. So when the tax collector asks God to have hilastheti on him, he is doing a couple of things at the exact same time. He is, on the one hand, fully admitting that he deserves punishment for his sins. Not a pass, Someone's got to pay for that wickedness, and he knows that he he admits that. And on the other hand, he's also abandoning any hope of forgiveness on the basis of any good deeds he might have done. He's admitting through tears that there is no way he can make atonement for the wicked things he's done and the evil thoughts he's had, but that he trusts that God can. And only God can. He offers no excuse, He mounts no defense. He only brings this really feeble plea: "God have mercy on me, a sinner." And Jesus says that he went home justified, not the Pharisee. Now, isn't that isn't an incredible twist to the story? Jesus doesn't mean that this immoral man start, suddenly became a good moral person. That moral character change is gonna come later. What Jesus is saying is that this wicked man has gained a new standing before Almighty God. He's got a new standing before God now. He was wrong with God. Okay, He was sideways with God. Now he's right with God. Why? Because God answered his humble prayer and had Hilas feti on him. Somehow God atoned for his sins so that he could be accepted by God. Now the question you and I are supposed to ask by the end of this story is, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? Through the one telling the story. through the one telling the story. Jesus knows how this story ends. He says, I tell you, right? He tells the story, but I tell you, he went home justified, not the other man. Jesus is like saying, I know the mind of God. I know how this story ends. And how does he know how this story ends? Because Jesus came to make the ending more than a story, He came to make it a reality for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the atoning mercy of God for sinners. Jesus absorbed the punishment that we deserve so that we could be accepted by God, have that acceptance that we want and that we need, and this is the gospel. Jesus does not call us to moral improvement so that we'll be accepted by God. That's what religion is. Jesus calls us to humility, to repentant faith. Jesus tells us to call to God for mercy, the mercy that only he can provide. That's what he's calling us to. In 2014, Peter Hugo traveled to southern Rwanda to help document through photos the power of repentance and mercy. And what he did was he met with both perpetrators and survivors of the Rwandan genocide. And he asked to take their photos together. And, and but it was, it, it was interesting. It wasn't just random photos. Of, photos of some survivor with some random perpetrator. What he did was he took specifically photos of the survivor with the one that had repented to them personally, which means they had met and talked. Right, Go to Freud. He says, "Quote: I burned her house." I attacked her in order to kill her and her children, but God protected them and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. I decided to ask her for forgiveness. They're still living in the same town that they did this stuff, right? Imagine that. I decided to ask you for forgiveness. To have good relationships with the person to whom you did evil deeds? We thank God. Evasta says, I used to hate him when he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness. This, This sounds a lot like that tax collector's posture, isn't it? And knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness. I was moved by his sincerity. Now if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. Wow. The power of repentance and mercy, amen? That's changing that society. See, some people think that the gospel is oppressive to a society because it implies that something is wrong with everybody. It implies that there's something wrong with people and that they cannot make it right themselves. That just makes people feel guilty about themselves. It just makes people feel bad about themselves, and that's oppressive. But actually, Jesus' call to repentant faith makes a society a better place. It opens a door so that reconciliation can be possible, not only with God, but also with our neighbors. Repentant faith says the only chance, the only chance I have for God to accept me is if he chooses to have mercy on me, if he chooses to make atonement for me. Therefore, I am no better than anyone else in the world, regardless of how wicked they live. Self-righteous faith, on the other hand, actually breeds intolerance in a society. Self-righteous faith says, well, I'm acceptable because I live a better life, I live a superior life than those who are different than me. And eventually, that kind of thing, that, that caused that happened. So how do we respond to this parable of Jesus? Well, first of all, we need to repent. That's how you and I need to respond. We need to repent. Not someone out there somewhere. Not all those other really bad people out there, right? You, me. We need to repent. As Peter said to the uh, early church in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. We need to repent, brothers and sisters, of our moral activities to make us acceptable to God. We need to despair of their power to make us right with the Lord. And here's a couple of ways we could find out if we are trusting in our moral activities. Remember, it's the default mode of our heart. So it is happening underneath but we don't even know what's happening, right? So here's a couple of diagnostic tests, all right? Here's a little MRI you can run on your own heart, okay? Ask yourself, in what way do I measure myself against those who are far from God? So pick an individual or pick a a group of people or a movement or something and think, how do I measure myself against those people? How would you finish this sentence if you were being honest? Well, at least I don't like my sister does, (laughs) like those people do. Or, well, I would never, because my parents didn't raise me like that. See, they did good moral activities. Here's another (laughs) test, another way we could do this. This is all about getting to the heart. It's all about getting to the heart. We're getting past behaviors and getting to the heart, right? When a sin in your life is actually exposed, is exposed by a family member or a friend that loves you or a pastor on a Sunday morning, what do you lean on to comfort your conscience? What do you go to to, to salve your guilty conscience so you don't feel guilty anymore? Is it your tolerance of all people? Yeah, I did that, but you know what? I'm tolerant of everybody, so I'm okay, right? Or is it your amount of Bible knowledge? Yeah, but I know more than them. I read more than them. The fact that you pray a lot, or at least more than them who brought this up, or that you care for the poor, at least more than them. Who are they to tell, see? What do you lean on to comfort your conscience when it accuses you? That's a way you can find out. Specifically, we need to acknowledge that trusting our moral activities is our way of telling God that we don't need his forgiveness to gain his acceptance. And we need to turn from that. Turn from trusting in that. And so it is okay to admit, I am trusting in it here in this part of my life. Good, now turn. Secondly, we respond by requesting. We repent and we request. These things go hand in hand. We repent and we request. James 4, 6 uh, through 10 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a promise. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You can lift yourself up or he can lift you up. Let him lift you up. Ask him. We request God's mercy toward us in Christ. Only God's mercy has the power to make us right with him, okay? Jesus was the morally perfect person that we could not be, and Jesus took the punishment that we should have received. He alone, he alone and not us, is the reason that we can stand before God fully accepted, fully forgiven, amen. The Reverend John Miller was fond of expressing the gospel of Jesus in this simple but beautiful phrase. Cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the good news of Jesus the greatest acceptance that we need to make us whole, the greatest acceptance that you and I are really deep down longing for, does not come from our boss. It does not come from our children. It does not come from our parents. It does not come from our heritage. It does not come from our friends. The acceptance that you and I deep down are longing for and want, it comes from God, and we have done nothing to deserve that acceptance. Yet he has done everything needed to accept us forever at great cost to himself. That's how much he loves you and me. There is something so freeing, brothers and sisters, to know that your acceptance with God has nothing to do with your performance. It's actually a joy to admit that you have no bargaining chips to use, you have no moral resume that you constantly have to keep updating and checking on. It frees you and I from the endless work of trying to impress God and then the anxiety of wondering if we actually did it. It's so refreshing to stop all the posturing. We can stop all that posturing of how good we are and just say, I am a sinner, has no hope of being right with you except that you show me atoning mercy. That's the only way this happens. It actually gets you high to get that low. The only people who can joyfully confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, are the people who have first said, God, have mercy on me, as sinner. And those are the ones that can smile. God is calling us into his joy through repenting and requesting his mercy and receiving it. Please pray with me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I pray for people here today that have never prayed that. Uh, That that you would free them up to pray it. Uh, That you would convince them that what you're calling them to is not endless life of work to try to make themselves better and then you'll accept them but that you have done all the labor that is necessary for them to be accepted. You have done it in Jesus Christ and I pray for those that have prayed a prayer like that that you'd help them believe it. Help them believe that they are forgiven. Help them believe that they are accepted by you through Jesus Christ, through his blood, through his resurrection. And that you would help us live in that truth today. Lord, show us where we're leaning and trusting on the wrong things and help us repent and turn. Help us ask for your mercy and receive it with joy. We're worse than we want to admit for more love than we could imagine because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.